Dr. Nigel Gergra is committed to reducing burnout and improving physician well-being by understanding the mental health needs of the physicians at Ochsner Health. I think during the valleys, if I can describe them as valleys, we're just seeing a lot of stress around staffing issues, inefficiencies that result in longer hours. I think all of us are trying to get back to you know business as usual. There's been a, a pent-up demand for services, a backlog of procedures, and that's just very challenging given the, the current staffing environment. Dr. Gergra is a transplant hepatologist and Chief Wellness Officer at Ochsner Health in New Orleans. In this episode, he speaks with Nancy Nankaville, AMA's Director of Practice Transformation, about Ochsner's continued focus on the well-being of its workforce. Here's Nancy. This is Nancy Nankaville, and I'm honored today to be here with Dr. Nigel Geergra. Dr. Geergra is with Ochsner Medical System in New Orleans. He is a transplant physician and also their chief wellness officer. Nigel, it's just a pleasure to be with you today to have this dialogue about what's happening in your institution and your lens on what's happening with professional well-being during this critical time. Thanks, Nancy. It's just so great to be here with you. So looking forward to the discussion. Terrific. Well, first of all, I have to start out by asking you, how are you doing? As a chief wellness officer, there's a lot on your plate and a lot on your plate in taking care of others. But I just really want to know how you're doing and how you're replenishing yourself right now. You mean on a scale of one to 10? (laughs) I I don't know. I guess um, it's been certainly an interesting 20 months. And I I think, um, you know, while I had a, a, you know, a grounded interest in physician well-being prior to the pandemic, I think how I've reacted to the stressors has really been um, really illuminating for me and my team as we think about, um, you know, our, our, our strategy and our approach going forward. I'm doing well, Nancy. Thanks for asking. I'd love to hear you give some wisdom to other chief wellness officers in their journey. But um, what I'd like to talk about next is, you're right, it's been a very interesting 20 months. Um, none of us probably expected both the duration and the impact of the pandemic. Um, But I'd love for you to be able to share what you are seeing right now as top stressors with your physicians. They've probably gone from fear to fatigue to frustration to anger and back again. But what are you and your leadership and your staff seeing as top stressors for your physicians? And as importantly, how are you looking at creating solutions to those stressors? Yeah, um, I think you summarized it quite nicely, um, sort of the the time frame. I guess um, we've seen a lot of things. I think right now, um, you know, during the surges, just seeing exhaustion um, from just constant change and uncertainty, uh, particularly when I think of the, the fourth surge, which... In Louisiana, we sort of experienced in in July and August, um, I saw a lot more anger um, from our healthcare staff, um, sort of the the sentiment that what we were seeing may be in part self-inflicted, that it could have been avoided. Um, I think that's dissipating a bit. Also seeing a lot more 
um, disruptive behavior, particularly with our patients and their and their families. And I, I know that's been very hard on our our care delivery teams. And I, I sort of liken it to sort of what our flight attendants are sort of putting up with these days with passengers. Um, and then that, that's kind of like the surges. I think during the valleys, if I can describe them as valleys, um, we're just seeing a lot of stress around um, staffing issues, um, inefficiencies uh, that, that result in longer hours. Um, I think all of us are trying to get back to um, you know, business as usual. There's been a, a pent-up demand for services, a backlog of procedures, and, um, and that's just very challenging given the, the current you know, staffing environment. And I, I will say what's been a little more unique to the to the to um, the s- south of Louisiana is um, Ida, Hurricane Ida. That was months ago, but we still have many staff, many, many staff that are still recovering, um, you know, with respect to damages and expenses from that. So um, a lot. We're feeling a lot and seeing a lot. Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Yeah, you and I have talked about those things, and um, some of them are unique um, to New Orleans, like Ida, but some of the things that you talked about, we are hearing regularly in our communication and work with other health systems. And some of the research that we've been doing is indicating when levels of stress remain high, um, work is now in overload, um, not resetting, but still work overload, and then dealing with things that are actually starting to impact the integrity of providing care, maybe with people that aren't vaccinated or staff shortages, et cetera. It's, it's quite the trifecta. And I'm wondering if you can comment on what you might be anticipating with regard to the workforce and intentions to leave. Um, Are you seeing anything and are you working to identify some strategies uh, in even different role types or just in general, how, you know, you will continue to move forward? Yeah. um, You know, going forward, I think in, in 2022, we just had a chance to sort of present our strategic plan Nancy, which sort of looks a bit like a hybrid of what our strategy was pre-pandemic and then how we had to adapt during the pandemic. I think um, by, uh, you know, the the essential issues around workforce retention, and I'm now not talking about just our physicians and APPs, I'm talking about our nurses and ancillary staff. Um, I think it's impossible to create a strategy around physician well-being that doesn't look at the well-being of of the whole care delivery team. So what worries me most um, is um, the mental health sequelae uh, of the pandemic. Um, I know you and I have talked a little bit about my background in Toronto, um, having had the opportunity to experience SARS-1 in uh, the earlier part of the 2000s, 2002, 2003, which was clearly much more limited in scope um, than than what we're seeing now. But there were well-studied 
long-term mental health outcomes in, in Toronto. Um, and um, there were some changes that occurred as a result of that. So um, I think as an organization, um, my team, uh, certainly myself, I think um, I'll always be mindful of the importance of practice efficiency, um, how we train our leaders, but I think anticipating um, the mental health outcomes, uh, I think destigmatizing that conversation within the, um, the healthcare industry and being a little more nuanced in how we approach those individuals that need uh, support during this time. I think these are some of the things that aren't honestly particularly well-developed, but certainly things that I'm thinking about a lot. Absolutely. And let's dig into that um, a little bit. I know that um, you and I had conversations and I would call you from your experience in Canada. What are the best opportunities around peer support and breaking down the stigma around mental health, et cetera? And I know you all have put in, I think, some really innovative programs and thinking around this. Can you describe um, some of what you've leaned into, especially around individual resiliency and breaking barriers on mental health? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, so, I mean, when we started into the pandemic, certainly we were a hot spot in March, April here in New Orleans. So a lot of what we did is was around out of necessity crisis support, um, both at an organizational level and, and what our Office of Professional Wellbeing was doing with our behavioral health team. So I, I think as we, and I can get into that later if you want, but I, as we sort of emerged from the first surge, um, resilience was something pre-pandemic that I, I really did not want to focus on, but I think it became clear that um, there was a need and there was an appetite for um, uh, you know, developing some resilience offerings. So we, we've put together a number of things, including a, um, you know, four-hour virtual course. Uh, we've created um, a number of YouTube videos that, you know, are about eight minutes in length. And these have been very well received, um, you know, high net promoter scores in terms of those that, that take them. Um, but then, um, you know, starting to think a little bit more specifically beyond resilience, but specifically around mental health. This gets back to your opening question. Back in 2020, I, I actually found myself really languishing uh, in July, August, kind of in a, in a darker place. Um, I sort of recognized that July and August um, traditionally uh, is a tough time for me. Um, I recognize the triggers. It, it represents um, uh, the anniversary of um, the death of a son. I lost a son to cancer many years ago. But last year, there just did not seem to be um, the compensatory things in place that usually allow me to, to, to cope with that. Uh, things like going up to Canada to visit my family and friends, um, I had a knee injury, so I wasn't able to exercise to the extent that I would like to. Um, and um, it was getting harder. And eventually I reached out for help and, and you know, it worked out. But 
the reason I tell you this is that the learning for me, um, and it was an obvious one, was that that story isn't unique to me. Um, I think um, most people I know, maybe everybody, <laughs> has some version of that story or a story. Um, and so that led me to um, think about more openly discussing that. Um, now, the Office of Professional Wellbeing and, and my role as Chief Wellness Officer, I have a, a quarterly uh, open letter that goes out to all 30,000 employees. Um, and honestly, historically, that had been a little sterile. It was just sort of like a report out on what we were doing, activities that, um, you know, uh, we offered in the, in the previous three months. This letter, I decided to make it a little more personal, and the letter was primarily about myself uh, and, and um, you know, what I just described to you, and then um, discussing more broadly the issue of uh, mental health stigma within our profession. Um, so that letter went out. I was incredibly anxious about it because... Um, I didn't know how it would be received. I didn't know how our executive team would receive it. I didn't know if the state licensing board would have something to say about it. But what resulted was this um, overwhelming response, uh, not just numbers of email replies, but three-page email replies, um, individuals expressing appreciation that that had been brought up, um, I, I, I can remember one employee reaching out to me telling me that um, early in the pandemic, he had lost his home and had been sleeping in his car um, since May of 2020. Um, and he even described crying as he went to bed. Um, and we, we were able to sort of um, put that individual in touch with the right resources. So uh, it seemed to sort of touch a nerve with the organization. And I think that that's some momentum that we're sort of trying to build on. And, and honestly, it, I started thinking that it goes back to before um, the story of my son, Bennett. Bennett. Um, I, you know, I started thinking a little bit more in my history and um, I thought a little bit about my training um, and even thought about going back to 1995 when I was a second year resident um, in Toronto. And at least in Canada, training in medicine, I would say second year residency was the highest stress year. It was sort of the highest, um, highest responsibility to knowledge ratio. Um, it's the first time that you're really in charge of teams of interns, medical students. Um, around that time, I had uh, a death in the family. My, my grandfather passed away. And for some reason, it just all came burning down on me where I, I felt paralyzed, anxious. And um, I thought, <laughs> part of me thought that was going to be the end of my career. And I, I mustered up enough um, uh, strength to, to go to my program director, um, who is like one of those individuals I'll 
you know, I'll remember for the rest of my life. His name was Dr. Herbert Hoping Kong. Uh, and I told him what was going on and he, he was compassionate. Um, he, um, you know, he, uh, he was discreet, um, and, uh, put me in touch with the right resources. And actually a year later, he asked me to be uh, chief medical resident, um, at the Toronto general hospital, which was a, a very prestigious role at the time. And, um, but I bring that up just that reaching out for help in this profession doesn't have to be a career stopper. It, it can make you stronger. It can open up doors. Um, and it's the right thing to do. So yeah. does, does that make any sense at all? Or Well, uh, it makes so much sense, um, Dr. G. And, and I can tell you in the qualitative data that we gain from working with health systems and the physicians who are willing to put a voice to it, they are looking for that kind of value from their system those values of being compassionate, being discreet, um, stepping into places that can be messy and hard, um, but allowing the narrative um, to come forward. And, and I'm a believer that that is what um, is a part of the strategy for change um, and moving through this. So I really commend you for being authentic and being brave and bold um, and sharing that. I, I'm guessing that it will serve as a model um, for others to do the same. And I want to come back to a couple of things that you even expressed within that. Um, again, what we learn um, from our survey work, um, residents have struggled um, through the pandemic. Um, and I'm wondering if you have a lens on that. And also if you have a lens um, and even some examples of how you might be looking at different specialties who may be harder hit um, from the pandemic and with burnout. Um, our data indicates that our physician colleagues in critical care are um, very fatigued and burned out. Um, and I just wonder if you can give some thoughts on, on these different role types and actually different time frames in people's careers. Um, we're also seeing our female physicians six to 10 years in practice who are dealing not only with work-life balance, the intensity of work, but then children unvaccinated or, you know, school from home. So, just any perspective you have as a strategy, as a chief wellness officer, how you're dealing with, you know, the variety um, that that is within your healthcare setting. Yeah, that that's a, a lot to take on. So, um, but thanks. It's a great question. I, I think pre-pandemic, um, largely uh, in collaboration with y'all in the the Mini Z survey, we um, did get a chance to look at what the state of burnout was uh, with our, our faculty physicians and APPs. And um, as you alluded to, um, you know, um, burnout seemed to be higher in our, our female physicians and APPs, uh, particularly those uh, maybe five to 10 years in practice. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's hard to imagine why. Um, and so, as a result of that, I, I think we've been sensitive to it. We um, we've developed a um, a resource group or an affinity group where our our female physicians to can come together to talk about unique stressors. Um, so that 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 sort of has existed pre pandemic, and certainly I'm sure um, continues into the pandemic. Um, I think. 
you know, and again, we um, had the opportunity this past year, um, you know, we, we were an alpha site with the sort of expanded mini Z uh, wellbeing index um, or organizational biopsy. So we were able to delve into um, at a more granular level, sort of drivers of professional fulfillment, but of interest to me, look at depression, uh, look at PTSD, look at those issues by department or service line uh, and, and come to some conclusions. Um, and it wasn't terribly surprising. I think the, the numbers are low, so I don't want to make any you know, complete, complete conclusions, but the um, areas that we would have thought were most at risk for uh, PTSD were uh, our ER physicians and APPs, our critical care physicians and APPs, our hospital medicine physicians and APPs, but in addition to those are our primary care folks. And, you know, pre-pandemic, at least at our organization, I, I worry the most about our primary care physicians because they seem to be on the front line of every new initiative, um, whether it's a new population health, uh, population health initiative, whether it's a new, um, you know, patient experience initiative. So, um, yeah, um, we're, we're trying to be a little more targeted in our responses, but um, you have to measure. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're sort of there or starting that, you know, discussion with, with, you know, some of the, the data that we've been able to put together. Yeah. And, you know, pre-pandemic, many organizations like you were measuring on more of an annual basis. Are you seeing a need to do that more frequently, even if it's in targeted areas or what is your measurement strategy um, now as we move through the pandemic and post? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, our commitment to measurement um, started before I actually took this role and actually led to the um, recommendations that this role, my role, be resourced and that our office be uh, resourced. So um, back in 2017, for the first time, um, we formed the Wellbeing Task Force and um, we sent out the Maslach burnout inventory, which was kind of clumsy, really, but uh, helpful. Um, and we looked at um, quantitative data from that survey. Uh, importantly, I think you have to combine that with qualitative data, which was based on uh, months of focus groups that I conducted across 2017, 2018, um, to sort of try to inform a strategy uh, and understand, um, you know, the state of burnout, at least at Oshner. Since that time, we continue to be commit, uh, committed to measurement. Um, so we've we've um, used the uh, the Mini Z survey um, that went out for the first time to the group practice in I think April of 2019. Um, the second survey went out in 2020, and then um, the third survey, which was the um, uh, the more expanded version of the survey. I think we're the, the first health system to offer that went out in June, July, as it turned out um, to be like just right during the fourth surge of the pandemic. So um, yeah, we're, we're committed to, um, to measuring it. I had the opportunity to report out to the board 
um, the results of the survey. So I think it all just starts with measurement and, and being able to, to uh, make sure that everybody in the organization, including our board of directors, knows what the state is. I love that. And I, I'd love for you to comment on your leadership commitment, your board of directors and your executive leadership team, um, you know, to supporting the well-being of your human assets. And um, I'd love for you to comment on where have been some of the pain points, some of the barriers you've had to push through, as I know leadership and board look at revenue Um and also, um, you know, where are the bright spots? What has surprised you from your leadership um, during all of this in support of, of the work you and your team do? Well, I think the, the biggest, biggest bright spot for me is um, I don't think there's any area within the organization that this subject um, doesn't um, touch individuals. So th there's been no shortage of grassroots enthusiasm to supporting, um, you know, some of the, the initiatives that have come out of the uh, Office of Professional Wellbeing. Um, I would say um, the other thing, um, I, maybe you could call it a silver lining. Um, I'm not sure that's the right word, but clearly workforce retention and workforce well-being has sort of emerged um, as no longer just a top five strategic imperative, but probably the number one uh, strategic imperative for the organization. So it has the full attention of our CEO um, and our executive team. Um, so, I mean, that's a good thing. Um, I think everybody's, not just our, our organization is, um, you know, just trying to understand um, where, you know, the whole workforce engagement, workforce turnover, uh, workforce retention issue is, is going to go. It, it, there's obviously a, you know, a moral case to address that, but there's a clear business case in terms of, um, um, you know, agency costs and, you know, what's co costing the bottom line. Um, so I, I think that that's, you know, been an upside. I think where we've struggled, honestly, during the pandemic is um, initiatives that are, are focused more around practice efficiency uh, and promoting advanced team-based care. We had a lot of momentum pre-pandemic, but, but those sorts of things have really, um, I would say, required more collaboration across business units. And I think particularly early in the pandemic, it was, you know, as everybody was being pulled in different directions, it was hard, sort of hard to bring together uh, multidisciplinary teams. Um, practice efficiency is clearly so important. I think it's the, the number one driver of physician professional fulfillment. So um, that's going to be clearly in our crosshairs as we emerge from the pandemic, if we ever emerge from the pandemic, is, is sort of refocusing on, on practice efficiency. Are there any um, priorities in that space? Again, um, I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of people had to put those things not to the side, but the focus became something very different um, with the pandemic. 
And we do know that workflows and processes and even teams got disrupted. Um, yeah. Are there some priorities on what I'll, I hesitate to use the word, but the reset, I know we may not go back to normal, but do you have some priorities, whether it's with the EHR or workflows or training up, um, you know, your support staff? Yeah, so um, we spent a lot of time, um, Nancy, trying to identify not just primary measures of success, but secondary measures of success and actually process metrics. Um, one of the big um important, I think, secondary metrics of success was uh, measuring pajama time or work outside work. We've been continuing to do that, um, identify physicians and APPs that are struggling the most in this area, um, trying to understand which areas of the EHR they're struggling in the most, um, whether it's, you know, making notes, whether it's uh, in-basket work, etc., um, and we've been trying to bring those individuals um, to sort of uh, EHR coursework uh, on our time, not on their time. Um, that got sort of paralyzed a bit just because, um, you know, we had a lot of positions approved and then positions were frozen early in the pandemic, but now we're sort of doubling down on that and trying to trying to get our most struggling physicians um, EHR help. And then the, um, the goal is to actually have all of our physicians uh, undergo sort of annual uh, EHR sort of retraining, I think, which is best in class. Um, that, that's sort of one area. Are we, um, we've also, things like um, establishing a pharmacy refill clinic. So um, how do we take um, things off the, uh, off the plates of our primary care physicians? Um, so that, that's something we've been collaborating with pharmacy is sort of automating that, um, uh, taking uh, message refills away from our primary care physicians um, as it turns out, 75% of them can be automated um, with, you know, with the help of our PharmDs and, you know, that, that in doing so, you can give back 25 to 40 minutes back to a, a busy primary care physician. And so I, I guess it's no, no one particular thing. It's just sort of like, um, you, you always hear the term death by a thousand cuts. How, how do you start chipping away at those thousand cuts one by one? And I think that's what we're we're getting to. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Well, it sounds like you have an eye on, um, they're more than the fundamentals, but they are the things in the workflow that can make the greatest difference and hopefully in the quickest fashion. So Again, kudos to you for focusing on um, those things that matter. And you're right, there 
right now more than pebbles in the shoe, but they can create um, a day and a, you know a life of a position that's less than than desirable. And so I want to ask you a question because I do know a little bit about you. I know you've got um, two sons um, that are I think not yet out of high school and some older kids yeah. as well. But um, you know, what would you say to young people about the profession, um, especially when we might have a workforce in peril and we may have physicians that are retiring before they want to, and unfortunately from burnout, what would you say to your own sons about the profession of medicine? And, and would you would you encourage them to, to step in and be a healer? Well, um, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up with a uh, old world, you know, I was born in the Middle East and my father was pretty traditional. Um, and in his eyes, I, I was a very good student. So in his eyes, it was, you're going to be a professional and you're going to be a physician. And actually that turned out to be the best career. I mean, he was right. But, uh, you know, in terms of my own perspective, I just want my four children to be happy. Um, that's the most important thing. I, I really, Nancy, don't care where they find happiness but I want them to be happy. Um, and in the sort of last chapter of my career, I always hate talking about using adjectives like last and words like chapter. I, I just want to get this profession in a better place so that I can more enthusiastically, um, you know, recommend this as a, you know, as a, as a choice for my, my, my teenage kids. Um, I get the sense that my 12 year old is sort of most interested in sort of, uh, mirroring my career path. Um, but, um, you know, um, well, I'm sure it's not, it's not the ringing endorsement that you want to hear. I, I, I primarily, uh, am a dad. I want them to be happy and I'm, I'm certainly not going to push them into any particular profession, but I always talk about, you know, how rich this um, career that spanned a number of decades has been for myself, but I'm not sure it's for everyone. Right, right. Well, I think it would be good to have more uh, Dr. G's out there in the profession and, and really serving in the way you have. And I'm going to tap into um, you for, for maybe a couple of more comments um, from your wisdom as a yeah. chief wellness officer. And, you know, when you and I met, which is now um, still less than a handful of years ago, but there were not that many chief wellness officers in the country. Um, uh, and I remember our early conversation. And, and uh, again, you were one of a handful that were stepping into this place that's been um, without much of a roadmap. But now, today, we are seeing far more chief wellness officer positions emerging um, and organizations making a commitment to wellness strategies, not in just resiliency, but really strategies that change culture and drive new ways of working and hopefully, again, um, more and more value, um, joy, purpose, and meaning to the profession. So as a wise now elder, um, chief wellness officer, right. yeah. what, might you, uh, what might you share to those that are either wanting to get into this space, being asked to step into this space? What might be the you know, top, 
top words of wisdom um, from from you to them? Yeah, uh, well, a couple of rambling thoughts. It's a, an incredibly gratifying role to be in. I think um, <laughs> uh, I remember, you know, I, I reported out our recommendations to the executive executive team in 2018, and one was to 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 resource this role. And then I was asked to take on this role. And, you know, honestly, um, I was really not clear that I wanted to take this role on because, um, you know, I, my professional identity was sort of more immersed in more traditional operational leadership roles. But it's, it's, um, it's, it's uh, certainly a role at a national level that's getting a lot more interest, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm so committed to Oshner, but <laughs> out of interest, um, clearly, just in terms of um, emails from recruiters uh, looking for chief wellness officers, it's clearly something that other organizations are identifying as uh, a strategic priority. So, um, so you know, that's one thing. Um, <laughs> I guess when you take on the role, if you do take on the role, I, I would just sort of um, advise individuals to really try and be strategic um, and thoughtful. I think physicians are generally impatient, so they don't understand why burnout can't be solved in two, two months um, with enough organizational will. But it's very important to to put strategy before tactics, um, to, to measure, um, and to, to influence other business units. So, um, those would be some, some recommendations. Um, maybe not the answer you wanted, Nancy, but that's my answer. It's always a good answer. And, and let me also ask you, you know, you've seen, um, and help shape our work at the AMA. We really do see it as a collaboration with people like you and organizations like yours. We hopefully bring things to the table, but we learn so much from the experiences um, that you all are engaged in. What what might be you know things that you would say to us at the AMA to either keep doing um, or to take on to support this work and people like you in these roles? Um, well, first of all, I have to say, and I've said this before, so, um, we have a partnership with the AMA, but, um, the help extended by the AMA antedates any relationship that I knew Oshner Health had with the AMA. So, um, I tell the story of, um, being lost in my role as the chair of the wellbeing task force before I had uh, this role. And uh, I didn't know if there was a roadmap, if a roadmap could exist. And honestly, when I reached out to you, I'm, I wasn't sure I was going to get a reply. And I think I was on the phone with you all within a couple of days. So um, uh, you, you all have been extraordinarily helpful um, shaping my strategy. You have a, a number of resources. I haven't been on the Steps Forward website recently, but that was... Uh, a website I was on constantly um, in 2018 as I tried to put together a strategy. Thank you all for listening today. And thank you, Dr. Geergrud, not only for 
an authentic conversation together today, but also for your ongoing commitment and leadership to the profession. It's greatly appreciated. And hopefully you are one of many who are moving medicine. Thank you so much, Nancy. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine.